Phil, my friend Phil, was a mess in the way that only a single guy could be a mess. You know what I mean? Uh, at the time, I was starting a 20-somethings ministry. I was in Dallas, Texas at this big church starting a 20-somethings ministry, and I pulled Phil onto my leadership team partially because I needed help, partially because Phil needed help. <laughs> like, Phil, don't get me wrong. Uh, Phil was a good, good guy, like, like soul to the earth, genuine as they come. But Phil was one of those guys that you kind of got to keep an eye on because he might go AWOL. Like, you, if you don't watch Phil, he's one of those guys who might, like, stop showing up for things and stop, like, functioning like a normal human should, like bathing and combing your hair, brushing your teeth. Like, um, one day I was talking to Phil, and, and he had that look in his eye, you know, like, like he'd been sitting in a pile of Dorito crumbs for the last week. And so I was like, Phil, friend, let's get together here. I'm getting a little worried. Let's, let's go get some lunch. And so we go out, and um, you do what you do in Dallas, which is you go to Tex-Mex. That's where God meets you. <laughs> and so we're at this, like, gourmet burrito place, and uh, we order and order this awesome burrito I'm so excited about, but I notice Phil, he's just, like, staring at it, pushing it around his plate. And at this point, I'm worried. Like, Phil's never seen a burrito he didn't love. <laughs> I'm like, hey, man, like, what's going on? I'm getting worried. Like, is this something about medication? Is this something about, like, what's going on? Like, are are you falling off a cliff here? And at that point, he, he says, and I quote, When I'm with her, I can't stop thinking about her. And when I'm near her, it feels like a water buffalo sitting on my chest. I can't even breathe, and I stare at him in disbelief, and I'm like... You're in love. That's awesome. Love had like smashed into his soul. It had wrecked him. He didn't ask for it. He didn't want it, but it smashed into his soul. And it so consumed him that he couldn't function like a normal human anymore. He couldn't sleep. He couldn't eat. He didn't look like a normal person anymore. And it was beautiful and horrible. So sometimes love, uh, sometimes love looks like grief. And sometimes longing, longing, good longing, makes you ache. Sometimes love can wreck you. And, and when I read through the scriptures, I get that Phil vibe over and over and over again. You know what I mean? Like, I, I listen to these words and I hear the words of someone who's been wrecked by love, by longing, someone who aches with longing for God. So some of my favorites are like Philippians chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul is like, anything in the world that you give me, anything you put in front of me right now, I consider it trash, garbage, rubbish, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I want to know him. Psalm 84, like the psalmist, the son of Korah, he's crazy. He's like, that bird, I'm so jealous of the bird. You're like, what's going on? He's like, that bird has a nest right next to the temple of the Lord. He gets to be with him all the time. Because better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And these, these are not just some odd verses. Like, this is the heartbeat of believers since the very beginning. Like, these are the stories of men and women who've been wrecked by love. Like, their, their lives are consumed with longing. And today, I want to look at an Old Testament character who gives off the Phil vibe, like, big time. 
Like he's a complete wreck. He's, he's a, it's a wreck of a life, but it's this beautiful picture. It's this beautiful picture of grace. It's a beautiful picture of what it looks like to long for our king. So we're going to be in the text of 2 Samuel today, but we're going to hop around. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there because we're going to jump through a few chapters. We're going to read 2 Samuel. We'll start in chapter 4, verse 4. And this, in chapter 4, verse 4, is where we're going to meet a guy by the name of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, yes. Can you say that? Mephibosheth. Yeah, I could get, let's have all of our toddlers say that. That'd be fun. Now, uh, uh, I guess the first thing you need to know about Mephibosheth is that his name is terrible. <laughs> and not just terrible to say, it's actually terrible. Um, so it's probably not what his mama named him. If you read in, uh, in Chronicles, let's see, it'd be First Chronicles 8 and 9, there's a couple of genealogies that list out his, his family. And, and his name seems to have been something like Meribal which means like contends with or fights with or struggles with the Lord. And we're not sure if that's good or bad, but that seems to be his name. But the word Meribaal was the second half of his name. Somewhere along the way, by the time Second Samuel's written, that word Baal no longer means what it traditionally meant, which was Lord or Master, but it came to mean the horrible, demonic, Canaanite god Baal. And no one, the Jews wouldn't even say that word anymore. They always associated it with, with the Canaanite God, no longer with the Lord or with the title of Lord or Master. So every time they came to the word Baal, they replaced it with a Hebrew word, Bosheth. Bosheth. Do you see it? The second half of that? Bosheth. Which is the Hebrew word for shame. So he goes from having a name that means fights with or struggles with the Lord to Something that is either from the mouth of shame, or some scholars think it's just a, a um, an updated version that it's actually struggles with shame. What a name! And that's just the beginning. It's going to get a lot worse. So Mephibosheth, he, he has what you call a hard start to life here. So get, let's let's lay the context here. His granddad is um, tall, good-looking king named Saul who rebelled against God, was tormented by evil spirits, and spent the last couple decades of his life chasing around God's anointed king, David, right? Trying to kill him. So, so granddad is a mess. Um, after a few decades of trying to like, take over God's kingdom and rule it for himself, Saul, Saul and his son, Jonathan, they're out in this big battle, this nonsense battle, and both of them, on the same day, in the same nonsense battle, die bloody, violent deaths, and then the news comes home that both of them are dead. And this is where we pick up the story. In 2 Samuel chapter 4, starting in verse 4, it reads like this. This is a parenthesis in the overall story. It says, Jonathan, son of Saul. So Saul's the king. He has a son named Jonathan. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name is Mephibosheth. 
So he's five years old. His nurse, they get the news that Saul and Jonathan are dead. The kingdom's turned upside down. She grabs Mephibosheth, starts running, and we don't know exactly what happens, but somehow she drops him. He falls. There's breaking of bones, smashing, and he never walks again. I'm going to let you think about this. You're five years old, and you will remember this day for the rest of your life. It's the day you lost your grandfather, your father, and your ability to walk. It's terrible. Meanwhile, he's healing up, and his uncle, Ishbosheth, which means man of shame, Ishbosheth, so this would be Jonathan's brother, tries, says, I'm the new king, I'm going to take over the kingdom, and he goes out, tries to do that, but it doesn't go well for him, because a little while later, he takes a nap, and some of his own men come and chop his head off. <laughs> so, that, that's a summary right here. This is the summary we have of Mephibosheth's early years. It's not what you call a happy childhood I want you to think about this kid's lot in life. If you ask, who are you? Like, who am I? The first thing he would say is, well, I'm broken. Like, literally, like, my legs have been broken. I'm crippled. And I want you to think what it'd be like to grow up lame in both feet in the ancient Near East. I want you to think what it'd be like. And and you don't actually have to think too hard. In a world without wheelchairs, without cars, without any handicapped accessible things, like those places still exist today. I imagine that that his early years probably looked a lot like it looks in other parts of the world right now. So who, who am I? I'm broken. Who am I? I'm the heir to the rebellious king who tried to kill David. By birth... He's part of the enemy family. I want to get this. By birth, he's born with a big target on his chest. So in the ancient Near East, if, if a, a dynasty takes over another dynasty, what's the new dynasty do? Well, they send out bounty hunters and assassins to kill off every last family member of the other dynasty so that they can't come back, right? That's what happens throughout the ancient Near East. It's already happened to Ishbosheth, his uncle. His head got chopped off. So, so all growing up, he gets to think about, oh, maybe they're coming to kill me. Or better yet, if you read the ancient Near Eastern texts, there are some where they don't kill you. What they do is they cut off your thumbs, and they gouge out your eyes, and they use you as a footstool. So while you and I are like growing up and worrying about zits and like, who am I going to take to homecoming, this kid's worried about losing his thumbs. That's Mephibosheth. Who am I? I'm broken. I'm going to die any day. There's a target on me. The, the phrase he'll use later is, I'm a son of death. Who am I? I'm struggles with shame. That's what my name means. And that's our introduction to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth, that's his childhood. Meanwhile, David comes in, takes over the kingdom. He becomes king. He moves into Jerusalem, sets up, sets up his, his capital there, brings in the ark, brings God back to the center of the kingdom of God's people. And, and this is great stuff is happening. And then 2 Samuel chapter 7, while David's reclining in his temple there, God comes to him and says through the prophet, You, I choose you. Like you're going to be like my very son. I am going to make you into a dynasty. I'm going to take you, and you are the a Messiah. By Messiah in Hebrew, Messiah or Christ, the word just means an anointed one, one who's been anointed by God, set aside. So you are a Messiah. You are a messianic king. You've been anointed by me for kingship, but through you will come the Messiah. 
And through your son, there will be someone ruling on the throne, ruling over God's people forever and ever. And David hears this and he's overwhelmed. And if you read through chapter 7 and into chapter 8, David prays and, and all he can say is like, who am I? Who am I to deserve this? And the reason why this point is so important, one, is just because this tells us the whole history of where Jesus Christ came from came from. But beyond the historical references here, this is going to be the moment that changes David's life. Like this is the moment where he experiences in a way that he's never known before, the kindness, the goodness, the grace of God, that God would love him that much, though he didn't deserve it at all. And the Hebrew word for that is hesed. The unmerited favor, just grace, pure grace. And David would then proceed to build his kingdom and make his kingdom a kingdom of grace. So that's in chapter 7 and 8. And then by chapter 9, years, years have passed. Mephibosheth was a kid, but years have passed. In chapter 9, suddenly things are calming down in the kingdom. And David's finally able to take a breather. The kingdom's secure. He's like, ah, what am I going to do next? And this is where we pick up the story again of Mephibosheth. It says in chapter 9, verse 1, David asked, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Now, what we expect to hear next is, is there anyone left in the house of Saul? Because I'd like to cut off their thumbs or kill them. We should take care of that before they try and overthrow my kingdom. That's what we expect. That's what a normal ancient Near Eastern king would say. But David is not a normal king. He says, is there anyone left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness, chesed, For Jonathan's sake. David had been friends with Jonathan, that's Saul's son, father of Mephibosheth. And so he's going to overlook, get this, he's going to overlook the fact that their family repeatedly tried to assassinate him. Like, I've overlooked some things in my life, right? Some of you have insulted me, but none of you have tried to assassinate me, at least not yet. He overlooks the fact that they repeatedly tried to assassinate him and overthrow his kingdom. And he decides to show them kindness, grace. Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive in the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Like, God has shown me kindness, and I've got to go share this with someone else. Like, David says, God blessed me when I didn't deserve it, and I have to do that now. So David wants to then go, and he wants to bless not just his friends. He chooses to bless his enemies. Ziba answered the king, there's a son of Jonathan, he is lame in both feet, which is to say, in this context, um, there's one, but you really don't want him. Like, he's broken, he's messed up. Where is he? The king asked, and Ziba answered, the house of Makir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. All right, so, so all this, all we need to know is it's in Lodabar. Do you, do you know where Lodabar is? It's as far as he could possibly get away from Jerusalem, Right? So, so Mephibosheth, if you ask, where is Mephibosheth right now? He's just trying to keep his head down and attached to his body. Like he's hiding out as far as he possibly can. And the king's like, we got to go get him. So they go and they, they get him all the way up from Lodabar, bring him down to Jerusalem, down to, to where David's ruling. And then we see this conversation where it says in verse 7, David says to him, don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake 
of your father. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. And like that, David makes this broken son of an enemy into one of the wealthiest men in the kingdom. Please appreciate how insane this is. Jenny and I, um, when we were first married, we lived in a cabana, technically. It was a back house on a large property, helped take care of the property. And um, we noticed the owners had three, well, actually four vehicles, including a Shelby Cobra, which was awesome. And, uh, but anyways, here and there, two of the vehicles, uh, one was a big Tahoe, another was a Caddy. And we noticed one day both cars were missing. And in their place, there's just one little rental car in the garage, and we're thinking, like, where, where, where'd they go? And then later, the story comes out that the guy, he was driving his Tahoe through one of these big intersections, and some little girl sped right through the light, T-boned him, like, right into the side of the Tahoe. She, she instantly, like, demolished, totaled her car, destroyed the Tahoe, and, um, and, and there we go. Thankfully, no one was hurt, but there we go. And we're like, well, that makes sense. Like, that's where the Tahoe is, but where's the Cadillac? And then it comes out, well, after they're doing, like, the paperwork there, and this girl's crying, like, crying and crying, and they realize this girl's in big, big trouble. She's pregnant. She's single. And now she has no way to get to work. So what do you do for this young woman who just smashed into your Tahoe? They loan her the Cadillac. Say, take it. We don't use it very much. Until you get another car, it's yours. Now, let me ask you a question. Does it make sense to give your car to a perfect stranger who just T-boned you, right? No. And yes. In God's kingdom, that makes perfect sense. So we say, David, you just made your enemy into one of the wealthiest people in the kingdom. Does that make any sense? And he's like, you're right, you're right. I only gave him wealth. I need to give him something more. So he says, and not only am I going to give you back all the possessions of your grandfather, you will always eat at my table. You're going to eat at my table like one of my sons. Like, I want you to appreciate that this is a culture in, in which the table, eating, was the center and consummation of every relationship. Like, the table, eating, was what held families together and formed them. What eating, the table, is where a man and a woman became a husband and wife, where two associates became business partners, where strangers became friends, where enemies became sons. And so he invites him in. He says, I want you to eat at my table. I don't want you to be a son of death anymore. I want you to be a son of the king. And the only way I can do that is if I show you God's kindness. He gives him a gift that he could never earn and he does not deserve, not just wealth, but a relationship with him, a personal relationship with the king. And this is, this is a grace that, that is so rarely seen in our world. It's a grace that can heal brokenness. It's a grace that removes shame. It's a grace that makes sons of death into sons of the king. And this, this, is, this is how things, David says, this is how things work in God's kingdom. 
So, so David then, he, he just did this, and then he, remember there's the servant Ziba standing there beside him. And so he turns to Ziba and says, Ziba, here's the deal. I just gave him, made him like the wealthiest man in the nation, but now he's got all the stuff to take care of. And look, he can't take care of it himself. You're in charge. I want you and your sons and your servants to now work for him. You're going to be the steward of all of his stuff. And Ziba's like, yes! This is a massive job promotion for Ziba from being unemployed to this. This is huge. And this would be great if this is where the story ended, right? You'd be like, yes, this is God's grace. The king sees his enemy, lavishes wealth and a relationship with on him, and that's just great. We all hug. But this is not the, the end of the story. This is really the beginning of the story. So here's what happens. David, David's on his throne, and I guess things are going great for Mephibosheth and for Ziba, and all of that's working well. And then, and then, and then, one of David's own sons, Absalom, comes after David, throws a rebellion, and forces him to flee. And if you remember, right, if you remember the story at all, this is going to be a massive test of the citizens of the kingdom. Like, where's your allegiance? Like, you followed David your, your whole life. You followed David, though, because he could do something for you, because he could protect you, because he could give you a job, because he could give you money. You followed David when he could give you all that stuff, but will you follow David? Is your allegiance to David when he's not going to give you all that? Is your allegiance to David when you think, oh, I I could find a better job this way. I could get money or protection this way. Like, here's a, a newer, younger, more attractive version. Are you following him because of what he can do for you, or are you following him? So then this leads us all to chapter 16, where all of this comes to a consummation. David is on his way out of, out of town, and Ziba um, suddenly shows up. Like, all these guys, like, they're out of town. They're forced to flee. Absalom's coming into Jerusalem to take over with an army, and David's weeping. Everyone's weeping. Some people are cursing David. Some people are swearing allegiance to him. And this guy, Ziba, he shows up, and he says to David, watch this. When David had gone a short distance from the summit, there was Ziba, the steward of Mephibosheth, waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. And the king looks at him and says, why have you brought these? Now, I want you to remember this. The, the, the question here, you usually wouldn't ask this question if someone's helping you, but Ziba, throughout the story, is always called a, a servant of Saul, even way after Saul's dead. Remember, Saul was the rebellious king, the evil guy who wanted to overthrow David. And, and David knows Ziba's heart. He knows where he's from. He knows his identity. You're a servant of the rebellious king. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Which brings me to... This guy. This guy is a guy I hung out with a lot this summer, right? Second only to my wife. <laughs> this guy is uh, Blaise Pascal. He wrote a book, not really a book, but kind of a book called Pincy. And he is a 1600s French philosopher, scientist, Christian genius. And, um, and his writing is a lot better than it sounds right now, I'm sure, <laughs> actually. But he's, he's famous in this work of his. He's famous um, for giving us an extraordinarily, famously pragmatic argument for believing in God. It's called Pascal's Wager. You may have heard of it. And so let's, let's outline this. He says, all of us, all of us, you, you, everyone, everyone who's sitting here right now, you are going to bet your life on something. You are. 
You, you don't get around it. Nobody gets a pass on this. You have to. There's no way to opt out. So here's the question. What are you going to choose? Option A, there is no God. Are you going to bet your life on that? Or option B, there is a God. Here's the deal. You will bet your life on one of these. You have to. By definition, no one gets to skip this question. So, so Pascal then lays it out. This is your wager. You're going to bet your entire life, your eternity on this decision. Which are you going to choose? And he says, now let's think about this. If you bet on the fact, option A, there is no God, and, and you're right, you know what you get? Nothing. <laughs> your life is meaningless, and then, then you die. What if you bet on your whole life on the fact that there is no God, and then you're wrong? You lose everything. You, you don't get purpose in this life, and you're separated from God in eternity. But what if you bet your life on, on the option that there is a God, and you're wrong? He's like, well, well that kind of stinks. You're just kind of, oops, I was wrong, and then you're dead anyways. But what if you bet your life on the fact that there is a God and you're right? You get everything. Now, do you hear that? Like, he says, now let's look at all the options here you have. Is it really a choice? With pragmatic precision, Pascal is going to show us, I believe the philosophic word is stupid, how stupid it would be To bet your life on the fact that there's no God, your best case scenario is that your life is meaningless. Now, let me say, this argument is not meant to be heartwarming. It's not meant to make you love God. And this is not at all how the scriptures will talk about belief in God. Not at all. But I want to say, there's something to it. All of us do have to bet our lives on something. And everything is at stake And I mention this to say, that's ziba. That is the logic of our pragmatic ziba, the steward. Like, we don't have any reason to believe that he deeply loved David, that he had any deep affection for him. Like, throughout the text, he's still just a servant of Saul. But even though he might not have affection for David, he's not a stupid man. He realizes that his entire future, like his job, is dependent on David. He knows that if Absalom becomes king and that's permanent, he could lose everything, everything, everything. Like he's got to bet his life on David. And so he does, and he bets big. He shows up there with this great, great gift. But then he decides to take it one step further, and he decides to to throw Mephibosheth under the bus. Watch this. Verse 3. Then the king said, Hey, where's, where's your master's grandson? Like, thanks so much for all these gifts, but shouldn't Mephibosheth be with you? Like, if you're giving this great gift, which is actually all of his stuff, shouldn't he be here right now? Ziba said to him, he's staying in Jerusalem because he thinks, today the Israelites will restore to me my grandfather's kingdom. Then the king said to Ziba, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is now yours. So, so he, he, Ziba has this story. He says, Mephibosheth, he didn't want to do this. He, he's thinking he's going to take the kingdom from you. He's wanted this whole, the, all along. He just took your food and took your stuff because he secretly wanted the kingdom for himself. Now, we have reason within the story itself to think that Ziba might be lying. And this conveniently works out really, really well for him. But I want you to just consider this. If this is true, 
It is the deepest betrayal. When he was broken, the king came after him and loved him and gave him what he didn't deserve and offered him a place into his family. If it's true that he's now betrayed him and now decided, no, I don't want you to be king. I, I just took that stuff. I just used you for my own promotion. It's unthinkable. And so David leaves town, and this question's hanging out in the air. Like, is this true? Like, did Mephibosheth really turn on David after he showed him such kindness and treated him like a son? And David is gone for weeks and weeks and maybe months. We don't know exact timeline. But then, then finally the rebellion's crushed, and it says in chapter 19, verse 15, three words, the king returned. And now everyone will have to give an account for what just happened. In verse 24, here comes Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. And Mephibosheth, he looks, he looks awful. He comes up and it looks like he hasn't combed his hair or shaved or done his laundry in weeks. He looks like Phil. So watch this. He had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king had left until the day he returned. So, so he let himself go for weeks and weeks. Like, this isn't just bad hygiene. I want you to pick this up. This is grief. Ever since the day David left, he's been in mourning. Like, he's been so heartbroken that he stopped doing normal things. Like, he couldn't shave anymore and he couldn't do his laundry anymore. Like, David left and it wrecked him. His life shut down. So the king looks at him and the king says, Why didn't you go with me, Mephibosheth? Like, why didn't you come? And he says, listen to this. The Lord my king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said, I will have my donkey saddled and will ride on it so I can go with the king. But Ziba, my servant, betrayed me. And he slandered your servant to the Lord. My Lord, the king is like an angel of God. So do whatever you wish. Like, I didn't come here, though, to defend myself. I know you, and I know how good you are. And even now that I look guilty before you, I trust you. All my grandfather's descendants deserve nothing but death. Literally, we're, we're sons of death. All uh, my whole family, we're all sons of death. We all deserve nothing but death from the Lord, my king. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table. Like you brought me into your household. I was broken and you brought me in. You treated me like your very son. So what right do I have to make any more appeals to the king? Literally, it says, what righteousness do I have? Like it wasn't my righteousness. It wasn't because I was so good that got me a seat at your table originally. That got me all that stuff that was undeserved. I didn't deserve it from the beginning. I couldn't stand and earn my place by my own righteousness then, and I certainly can't stand in my own righteousness now. Then the king said to him, Why say more? I order you and Ziba to divide the land. Now, he, I want you to hear this. David just looks at him and says, Hey, stop talking. We're going to cut the land in half. You get half. Ziba gets half. There we go. Now, modern commentators, if you, if you read the modern commentaries out there, you'll find that the vast majority of them read this and say... David's stressed. He just got back. He has to make a quick decision. He doesn't know who's lying. Is Ziba lying? Is Mephibosheth just like putting on makeup and making up this show? Like, what are we going to do with this? Hey, I'm not going to try and solve this. Cut it in half. Go. But if you read the ancient 
commentaries. They don't read it quite that way. And I'm not quite sure I see it that way. The ancient commentaries look at this and they say, wait a second, wait a second. That, this reminds me of another story, not about David, but about David's son Solomon, that in 1 Kings chapter 3, there's a story in which two women come and they both claim, that baby's mine, that baby's mine. No, her baby died. No, her baby died. That baby's mine. And they stand before the king and the king's like, what do we do? One of them is lying for sure. The baby can't be from both of them. But how do we possibly decide that? And what does King Solomon decide to do? Give me a sword. Cut the baby in half. Now I ask you, does Solomon want each woman to take half a baby home? No. So why does he do it? Because he knows that when you cut the baby in half, when you threaten to cut the baby in half, the true mother will so love that baby that she'll let go. The one who's willing to let go, that's the true mother because you see her heart. So what does David do here? He's like, I got a decision. One of you are lying. One of you are lying. So what does David say? Cut it in half. If you just came to me for money, take it. Does David really want to just split the land? Or is this a test? Look at verse 30. Mephibosheth, though, responds, says to the king, let him take everything. Now that my lord, the king, has returned home safely, let him take it all. I didn't come here for your stuff. I came here for you. You're what I want. And that, that is the heart of a child of the king. So why, 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 why does God take the time to lay out this long, intricate story of Mephibosheth for us to read thousands of years later. Why? Why are we talking about this in 2017, so far away from all these things? Like, so James, James, the brother of Jesus, the head of the early church, he, he suggests at one point that we should read the Bible. When you think of it, you should think of it as a mirror. God's word is a mirror. Like it reveals imperfections, it shows you what you really look like, it makes you aware of truth that you might not see all on your own. And I have to say, I think the reason I have such a soft spot for this convoluted wreck of a man is that I see myself in him. I am Mephibosheth. Like I've never been dropped. But I know what it means to be broken. There are parts of my soul that do not work the way they're supposed to. And I know that I'll probably drag those through my entire life until Jesus comes. I might not be the physical descendant of a rebellious king, but I am, Ephesians 2.2, a son of disobedience. And I know what it feels like to have selfishness and pride and lust and envy and brokenness in my very DNA. I'm a pastor. I've been following Jesus for years, and I still feel the pull of old allegiances, of wanting to, wanting to have my own kingdom. I know what it's like to struggle with shame. 
You know what I also know? I also, I am Mephibosheth. Like, I know what it's like to have a great king come seek me out when I wasn't looking for him and say, no, I want to bless you. You didn't deserve it, but I'm coming after you because I love you. Not because of anything you've done, but because I choose you. I know what it's like to be blessed by a great king. I know what it's like to be invited into his very life, to his very table. I know Romans chapter 5. That while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. He, he brought me, his very enemy, into his life so that I, a son of death, could become a son of the king. And just like Mephibosheth, my king's gone. I don't know when he's going to return. But I also know what Mephibosheth didn't know. I know that my king has promised to come back. And when he comes back, I know that I will have to stand before him. And, I, and like Mephibosheth, I cannot stand by my own righteousness. I already know that. I know that my righteousness did not get me into a relationship with him, and it will not allow me to stand before him at the end. I am Mephibosheth at so many levels, and, and I have a sneaking suspicion that many of you are too. But here's... Here's, if that's not uncomfortable enough, here's where it actually gets uncomfortable for me. It's, um, we probably all know that we're broken. And we probably all know that we've been given a gift we do not deserve. And we probably all know, at least intellectually, that Jesus is king. But there's one thing in the story that I'm not sure fits. When Mephibosheth is separated from the king, he's a wreck. Like he grieves. Like, he can't function like a normal human. That's how much he longs for and loves his king. And every time I look at this story, like, I can't get around this question. Like, do I long for my king the way Mephibosheth does? Like, do I long for Jesus to return, or would I rather check a few more things off my bucket list? Like, I really wait to come back, but there's Monte Rosa. I could go there again. Like, do I long for him more than all the stuff that he could give me? Like, can I really say that I don't care about all this stuff? I don't care now that my Lord has returned. That's all that I want. You are all that I want. You are all that I want. But there's one day in your house and a thousand elsewhere. I want to know him. So I don't say all this to guilt you or frighten you. I say all this as a reminder mainly to myself a reminder that we need to hear that the Bible says that you and I will have to stand someday before our Lord and we have no idea when. Are you betting your life on that fact? Because all of us have to bet. Either Jesus is going to return and we're going to stand before him or not. So I think I, what brought me to this text August 12th will be a year. A year ago, I got a text. Phil, my friend, went to the gym, um, had a good workout, goes out to his car, and died. Just died. No warning, no hint, he's just gone. And now that wreck of a man is standing before our king, I know, Phil, 
I know he bet his life on Jesus. I know that he's standing there not by his own righteousness. And I am willing to bet that he's eating a gourmet burrito at the king's table right now. (laughs) But for me, this is a reminder that all we have is today. All we have is today. All we have is today to repent. All we have is today to live life for Christ. All we have is today to use our stuff for his purposes. All we have is today to long for him. And if we don't cry out for him today, if we don't repent today, if we don't long for him today, we don't know what we have tomorrow. If you have never, if you don't know what I'm talking about, if you're like, Mephibah, what? Received a gift he didn't deserve. Like, you're like, what is this grace you're talking about? If none of this penetrates your heart, if you've never heard that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, he is the exalted king who is coming back, who loves you, who poured out his riches, the riches of God's grace on your life so that you could know him, you can eat at the table, you could be called a very child of God. If you've never experienced that, if that's never smashed into your life and wrecked you, I want to invite you today, today, today's all you got. And if you have, can I just remind you, let it wreck you again and again and again. Church, may we be a church who long for him, who don't know how to function without him. May we be a church where our cry, our heartbeat is, I want to know him. I consider everything rubbish better as one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. May the beat of our heart, may our very prayer be, thy kingdom come. Let's pray. Father, like the early Christians, I pray Maranatha. Lord, come. God, I pray over all of our pleasures and distractions. I pray that all of those would not get in the way of you, but would point us to you. God, for those of us who are suffering, Lord, I pray that our suffering would remind us of your goodness. That those who are broken will be made whole. God, I I, I pray especially for those who who don't know where they stand with you, who've never received the gift of what Jesus did for them, who've never trusted you, who've never sworn allegiance to him as their king, and who are terrified of him coming back. Or worse, mock it. God, I pray that you break through their heart, and not not just with fear, Lord, or guilt. No one's saved by those, and we know that, but they're saved by your grace. God, we pray that you break through their hearts with your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.